Chapter Forty Two of Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Forty Two. Dizzy with all the problems of life, he did not notice where he went. He walked blocks, took a trolley car, got off to buy a strong cigar, took the next trolley that came along, was carried across the 59th Street Bridge to Long Island. At the 8th or 10th stop he hurried out of the car, just as it was starting again. He wondered why he had been such a fool as to leave it in the dark street of flat-faced wooden houses with dooryards of trampled earth and general air of poverty, goats, and lunch-pails. He tramped on, a sullen and youthless man. Presently he was in shaggy open country. He was frightened by his desertion of Ruth, but he did not want to go back nor even telephone to her. He had to diagram where and what and why he was, determine what he was to do. He disregarded the war as a cause of trouble. Had there been no extra business pressure caused by the war, there would have been some other focus for their misunderstandings. They would have quarreled over clothes and aviation, Aunt Emma and Martin Dockerell, poverty and dancing, quite the same. Walking steadily, with long periods, when he did not think, but stared at the dusty stars or the shaky, ill-lighted old houses, he aligned her every fault, unhappily rehearsed every quarrel in which he had been to blame. His lips moving, as he emphasized the righteous retorts he was almost certain he had made. It was not hard to find faults in her. Any two people who have spent more than two days together already have the material for a lifelong feud. In traits which at first were amusing or admirable, Ruth petty manners, of which Carl had been proud, he now cited as snobbish affection. He did not spare his reverence, his passion, his fondness. He mutilated his soul like a hermit. He recalled her pleasure in giving him jolly surprises, in writing unexpected notes addressed to him at the office as fussy discontent over normal life. He regarded her excitement over dances as evidence that she was so dependent on country club society that he would have to spend the rest of his life drudging for her. He wanted to flee. He saw the whole world as a conspiracy of secret, sinister powers that are concealed from the child, but to the man are gradually revealed by a pitiless and never-ending succession of misfortunes. He would never be footloose again. His land of heart's desire would be the office. But the ache of disappointment grew dull. He was stunned. He did not know what had happened did not even know precisely how he came to be walking here. Now and then he remembered anew that he had sharply left Ruth, Ruth, his dear girl, remembered that she was not at hand, ready to explain with love's lips the somber puzzles of life. He was frightened again, and beginning to be angry with himself for having been angry with Ruth. He had walked many miles. Brown fields came up at him through the paling darkness, a signboard showed that he was a few miles from Mineola. Letting the coming dawn uplift him, he tramped into Mineola, with a half-plan of going on to the nearby Hempstead Plains aviation field, to see if there was any early morning flying. 
It would be bully to see a machine again. At a lunch wagon, he ordered buckwheat cakes and coffee. Sitting on a high stool before a seven-inch shelf attached to the wall, facing an array of salt casters and ketchup bottles, and one of those colored glass windows with a portrait of Washington, which give to all lunch wagons their air of sober refinement. Carl ate solemnly, meditatively. It did not seem to him an ennobled setting for his grief, but he was depressed when he came out to a drab first light of day that made the street seem hopeless and unrested after the night. The shops were becoming visible, gray and chilly, like a just-awakened janitor in slippers, suspenders, and tousled hair. The pavement was wet. Carl crossed the street, stared at the flying speckled cover of a magazine six months old that lay in a shop window, lighted by one incandescent. He gloomily planned to go back and have another cup of coffee on the shelf before Washington's glossy but benign face. But he looked down the street, and all the sky was becoming a delicate and luminous blue. He trotted off toward Hempstead Plains. The aviation field was almost abandoned. Most of the ambitious line of hangars were empty now, with faded grass thick before the great doors that no one ever opened. A recent fire had destroyed a group of five hangars. He found one door open, and three sleepy youngsters in sweaters and khaki trousers bringing out a monoplane. Carl watched them start, bobbed his chin to the music of the motor, saw the machine canter down the field and ascend from the dawn to the glory of day. The rising sun picked out the lines of the uniclosed framework and hovered on the silvery wing surface. The machine circled the field at two hundred feet elevation, smoothly, peacefully, and peace beyond understanding came to Carl. He studied the flight. Hmm, good and steady. Bank's a little sharp, but very thorough. First rate. I believe I could get more speed out of her if I were flying. Like to try. Wonderingly, he realized that he did not want to fly, that only his lips said, like to try. He was almost as much an outsider to aviation as though he had never flown. He discovered that he was telling Ruth this fact in an imaginary conversation, was commenting for her on dawn sky and the plains before him and his alienation from exploits in which she could not share. The monoplane landed with a clean volplane. The aviator and his mechanics were wheeling it toward the hangar. They glanced at him uninterestedly. Carl understood that. To them, he was a typical bystander, here where he once starred. The aviator stared again, let go of the machine, walked over, exclaiming, "'Say, aren't you Hawk Erickson? This is an honor. I heard you were somewhere in New York. Just missed you at the Aero Club one night. Wanted to ask you about the Bagby Hydro. Won't you come in and have some coffee and sinkers with us? Proud to have you. My name's Barry. Thanks. Be glad to. While the youngsters were admiring him, hearing of the giants of earlier days, while they were drinking inspiration from this veteran of twenty-nine, they were in turn inspiring Carl by their faith in him. He had been humble. They made him trust himself, not egotistically, but with a feeling that he did matter, that it was worthwhile to be in tune with life. Yet all the while he knew that he wanted to be by himself, because he could thus be with the spirit of Ruth. 
and he knew subconsciously that he was going to hurry back to Mineola and telephone her. As he dog-trotted down the road, he noted the old Dutch houses for her, picked out the spot where he had once had a canvas hanger, and fancied himself telling her of those days. He did not remember that this hanger he had known Istra, Istra Nash, the artist whose name he scarce recalled. Istra was an incident. Ruth was the meaning of his life and the solution of his problems came all at once, when suddenly it was given to him to understand what that problem was. Ruth and he had to be up and away, immediately, go any place, do anything, so long as they followed new trails and followed them together. He knew positively, after his lonely night, that he could not be happy without her as comrade in the freedom he craved, and he also knew that they had not done the one thing for which their marriage existed. They were not just a man and a woman. They were a man and a woman who had promised to find new horizons for each other. However much he believed in the sanctity of love's children, Carl also believed that merely to be married and breed casual children and die is a sort of suspended energy, which has no conceivable place in this overall complex and unwieldy world. He had no clear nor ringing message, but he did have, just then, an overpowering conviction that Ruth and he, not every one, but Ruth and he, at least, had a vocation in keeping clear of vocations, and that they must fulfill it. Over the telephone he said, Ruth, dear, I'll be right there. Walked all night, got straightened out now. I'm in Mineola, it's all right with me now, blessed. I want frightfully much to make it all right with you. I'll be there in about an hour. She answered yes, so noncommittally that he was smitten by the fact that he had yet to win forgiveness for his frenzy in leaving her, that he must break the shell of resentment which would increase her after a whole night's brooding between sullen walls. On the train, unconscious of its uproar, he was bespelled by his new love. During a few moments of their lives, ordinary real people, people real as a toothbrush, do actually transcend the coarsely physical aspects of sex and feeding, and do approximate to the unwavering glow of romantic heroes. Carl was no more a romantic hero-lover than as a celebrated aviator. He had been a hero-adventurer. He was a human being. He was not even admirable, except as all people are admirable, from the ashman to the king. There had been nothing exemplary in his struggle to find adjustment with his wife. He had been bad in his impatience, just as he had been good in his boyish affection. In both, he had been human. Even now, when without reserve he gave himself up to love, he was aware that he would ascend, not on godlike pinions, but by a jerky, old apartment-house elevator, to make peace with a vexed girl, who was also a human being, with a digestive system and prejudices, yet with a joy that encompassed all the beauty of banners and saluting swords, romantic towers, and the fugitive queen, a joy transcending trains and elevators and prejudices. Carl knew that human girl as the symbol of man's yearning for union with the divine, he desired happiness for her with a devotion great as the passion in Galadad's heart when all night he knelt before the high altar. 
He came slowly up to their apartment house. If it were only possible for Ruth to trust him, now. Mingled with his painfully clear remembrance of all the sweet things Ruth was and had done, was a tragic astonishment that he, the same he who was all hers now, could possibly have turned impatiently from her sobs. Yet it would have been for good, if only she would trust him. Not till he left the elevator on their floor did he comprehend that Ruth might not be awaiting him, might have gone. He looked irresolutely at the grill of the elevator, shut on the black shaft. She was here when I telephoned. He waited. Perhaps she would peep out to see if it was he who had come up in the elevator. She did not dare peer. He walked the endless distance of ten feet to the door, unlocked it, labored across the tiny hall into the living room. She was there. She stood supporting herself by the back of the Davenport, her eyes red-edged and doubtful, her face tightened, expressing an enemy or dread or shy longing. He held out his hands like a prisoner, beseeching royal mercy. She, in turn, threw out her arms. He could not say one word. The clumsy sign called words could not tell his emotion. He ran to her, and she welcomed his arms. He held her, abandoned himself utterly to her kiss. His hard, driving mind relaxed, relaxed was her body in his arms. He knew, not merely with his mind, but with the vaster powers that drive mind and emotion and body, that Ruth, in her disheveled dressing-gown, was the glorious lover to whom he had been hastening this past hour. All the love which civilization had tried to turn into normal married life had escaped efficiency's pruning hook, and had flowered. It's all right with me now, she said. So wonderful. All right. I want to explain. Had to be by myself. Find out. Must have seemed so unspeakably. Oh, don't, don't explain. Our kiss explained. While they talked on the Davenport together, reaching out again and again for the hands that now really were there, Ruth agreed with Carl that they must be up and away, not wait till it should be too late. She too saw how many lovers plan under the June honeymoon to sail away after a year or two and see the great world and, when they weary die, know that it will still be a year or two before they can flee to the Halcyon Isles. But she did insist that they plan practically, and it was she who wondered, what would happen if everyone went skipping off like us? Who'd bear the children and keep the fields plowed to feed the ones that ran away? Golly, cried Carl. Wish that were the worst problem we had. Maybe a thousand years from now, when everyone is so artistic that they want to write books, it will be hard to get enough drudges. But now, look at any office with the clerks tolling away day after day, even the unmarried ones. Look at all the young fathers of families giving up everything they want to do to support children who'll do the same thing right over again with their children, always handing on the torch of life, but never getting any light from it. People don't run away from slavery often enough, and so they don't ever get to do real work either. But, sweetheart, what if we should have children some day? You know, of course we haven't been ready for them yet, but some day they might come anyhow, and... How could we wander round? Oh, probably they will come some day, and then we'll 
take our dose of drudgery like the rest. There's nothing in our dear civilization punishes as it does begetting children. For poisoning food by adulterating it, you may get fined fifty dollars. But if you have children, they call it a miracle as it is, and then they get busy and condemn you to a lifetime of being scared by the boss. Well, darling, please don't blame it on me. I didn't mean to get so oratorical, blessed. But it does make me mad the way the state punishes one for being willing to work and have children. Perhaps if enough of us run away from nice normal grinding, we'll start people wondering just why they should go on toiling to produce a lot of booze and clothes and things that nobody needs. Perhaps, my hawk, don't you think, though, that we might be bored in our Rocky Mountain cabin if we were there for months and months? Yes, I suppose so, Carl mused. The rebellion against stuffy marriage has to be a whole lot wider than some little detail like changing from city to country. Probably for some people the happiest thing would be to live in a old bohemian flat and have parties, and for some to live in the suburbs and get the missus elected president of the Village Improvement Society. For us, I believe it's change and keep going. Yes, I think so, Hawk, my Hawk. I lay awake nearly all night last night, realizing that we are one, not because of a wedding ceremony, but because we can understand each other's make-believes and seriousness. I knew that no matter what happened, we had to try again. I saw last night by myself that it was not a question of finding out whose fault a quarrel was, that it wasn't anybody's fault, but just conditions, and we'll change them. We won't be afraid to be free. We won't, Lord. Life's wonderful. Yes, when I think of how sweet life can be, so wonderfully sweet, I know that all the prophets must love human beings, oh, so terribly, no matter how sad they are about the petty things that lives are wasted over. But I'm not a prophet. I'm a girl that's awfully much in love. And darling, I want you to hold me close. Three months later, in February 1915, Ruth and Carl sailed for Buenos Aires, America's new export market. Carl was the Argentine Republic manager for the Van Zyl Motor Corporation, possessed of an important salary, a possibility of large commissions, all hopes like comets. Their happiness seemed a thing enchanted. They had not quarreled again. The S.S. Sangriel for Buenos Aires and Rio had sailed from snow into summer. Ruth and Carl watched aisles of palms turn to fantasies carved of ebony in rose and garnet sunset waters, and the vast sky laugh out in stars. Carl was quoting Kipling. The Lord knows what we may find, dear lass, and the deuce knows what we may do. But we're back once more on the old trail, our own trail, the out trail. We're down hull, down on the old trail, the trail that is always new. Anyway, he commented, Deuce only knows what we'll do after Argentine, and I don't care, do you? Her clasping hand answered as he went on. Oh, say, blessed, I forgot to look in the directory before we left New York to see if there wasn't a society for the spread of madness among the respectable. It might have sent us out as missionaries. There's a flying fish, and tomorrow I won't have to watch clerks punch a time clock 
and you can hear a sailor shifting the ventilators, and there's a little star perched on the foremast, singing. But the big thing is that you're here beside me, and we're going. How bully it is to be living, if you don't have to give up living in order to make a living. The End End of Chapter 42 Recording by Mike Vendetti, Canyon City, Colorado, MikeVendetti.com End of Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis